Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And welcome to The Napoleonicist. Today I'm joined by Rob Griffith, a reenactor, historical fiction writer, and most recently respected author of Rifleman, a history of the 5th Battalion 60th Royal American Regiment, which was published by Hellion. We're going to explore the question of the forgotten riflemen, the men of the 5th 60th who had the same equipment and were given the same tasks as their more famous comrades in the 95th Rifles, who, until Rob's book came out, hadn't been given the attention they deserved. Rob, it's great to have you on The Napoleon Assist. How have you been doing? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. And uh, thanks for asking me on. You know, it's great to talk to you. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, I do want to say that despite you being one of the very generous Patreon supporters of the podcast, that isn't why you're here. I <laughs> the Rifleman of the 5th, 60th probably aren't well known to our listeners, and they're certainly less likely to be familiar with them than their comrades uh, in in the army of the, the 95th Rifles. So to give everyone a flavour of their service, first of all. Okay, so um, the 60th Regiment for, as a whole was formed during the Seven Years' War as the, the Royal American Regiment, and it was formed specifically to um, fight the French in the forests of North, you know, of North America, where they're sort of, the, the traditional um, line tactics of the British infantry weren't working against the French and their Native American allies. So, so they were formed from the outset as, as light infantry, and they were mainly recruited from Swiss and German settlers, uh, from Swiss and Germans on the continent, and from British units. And they served throughout um, the Seven Years' War, the American War of Independence, and through into the, um, uh, the Revolutionary Wars, um, mostly in, in, in North America, yeah, which included Canada and, and the West Indies. Um, at the outbreak of war with France in 1793, the British army was severely under strength and it also had a severe weakness in light infantry. And so uh, the Duke of York, who was commander in chief, um, got lots of emigre officers, you know, uh, French and German and Swiss officers who'd uh, you know, uh, been either in fighting the French or in, in, in French royalist units um, to form regiments for the British army. And a lot of these were put into the West Indies because that's where they needed lots of light infantry because we might think the West Indies has nice beaches and you know a place for holiday but you go into the interior it's mountainous it's, it's you know it, you know it's jungles and you need light infantry there you, you can't fight in the you know line battles etc so a lot of these units were sent to the West Indies and like all troops in the West Indies at, at the time they got decimated by yellow fever and other diseases and so by, uh, by 1797, a lot of these units were down to like a couple hundred men. And so it's decided to save money by, by disbanding all those regiments and putting the troops into the, in, into the 60th. And the Duke of York had seen some of these um, troops uh, in, uh, the, in the Low Countries, and a lot of them were armed with rifles. And he decided to form a 5th Battalion of the 60th, which 
exclusively armed with rifles. And so they came into being in, uh, the, in December 1797. Um, they, uh, a couple of companies served during the Irish Rebellion, uh, and then they uh, served in the West Indies and Nova Scotia. And um, by 1807, they were getting prepared for another mission to uh, South America, uh, when suddenly the, um, uh, the, the Spanish um, revolted um, against French rule. And the expedition changed its destination from uh, Venezuela uh, to Portugal. And was, uh, so the 1808 expedition under, under Sir Arthur Wellesley, um, the 560th formed the majority of the rifle troops there. There's only four companies of the 95th and 10 companies of the 560th. And uh, the 560th then fought throughout the Peninsular War. They were one of only three battalions to be there from the start to the finish. Um, they, unlike the 95th, who, who fought mostly in the, in the light division and as a battalion, the 560th was split up into individual companies and placed with the various brigades. This gave each brigade commander, um, a spe uh, you know, specialist rifle, specialist rifle troops, and also boosted their numbers of light infantry. And the fifth sixtieth worked with um, the three companies of uh, three light companies um, from from the uh, from the brigade to form a sort of a specialist light infantry battalion. And so each brigade commander uh, would have this, you know, four companies of light infantry and. Um, they're quite often formed into divisional size units as well. The, the third division uh, and did, did that a lot. And because they're so split up, they basically fought in all the battles. You know, there's, there's one or two light, light division only um, battles where they weren't there, but, but um, they, they were all throughout the um, campaign. They won 16 battle honors and they were basically everywhere, which obviously made the book uh, a little bit challenging for, yeah, for my first for my first history book. I best, basically had to write history of the Peninsular War as well. Um, but uh, you know they they were frequently praised by Wellington. You know, and they were at the forefront of, of most 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 of the battles. What drew you to want to write about them then? Um, well, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, I had been writing historical fiction set in the period. Uh, my character was a, uh, a spy for the Alien Office, which is the, the, the main British spy agency at the time. And um, I wanted to get some kind of more hands-on experience with the uniforms and the weapons. And so I started looking for a, a living history group. And, you know, the, uh, there are lots of living history groups, you know, based in the period uh, in the UK. There are red coat units, cavalry units, whatever. And surprisingly enough, uh, at least four 95th units I can think of. Um, but I wanted you know, to be something a bit different and the 60th had an interesting history. Um, so, and most of the members were local to me in the Midlands. Um, so I joined the 5th the fifth, the fifth 60th and probably about six months after I joined, the unit was approached by Andrew Bamford, who is the series editor for Hellion. And he actually fights for the French. And um, he approached the unit and said, look, is there anybody who wants to write a history because it's an interesting unit and I was put forward because I had writing experience and haven't looked back since really it's been a fascinating you know I never thought I'd be writing history you know uh, I've really loved it though. I mean I have to say you also write it very well which Thank is you. why it's a pleasure to, to have you on this I've been mm -hmm. thinking about doing this interview for, for a while I can't believe it's taken me this long I, I mean I'm very interested in the fact that you approach this from a couple of perspectives that perhaps traditional inverted commas, traditional historians wouldn't, in that you have that reenactment experience, which means that you perhaps appreciate some of the realities of fighting in a way that a lot of us can't. So what was the reality of life as a rifleman? Because there are a lot of misconceptions off the back of Sharp, but there are also misconceptions about the, the everyday life of the soldier during this period. So kind of help people to deconstruct that a little bit yeah i mean i was kind of a bit careful not to bring too much of the reenactment experience into it because just doing it you know as a guy in my 50s you know just hanging out with loads of blokes drinking beer and firing guns at the weekend isn't quite the same thing as living through a campaign you know um so there were large elements of it that i sort of had to you know not assume that what we did as reenactors was anything close to what they did in real life it's, it is very different 
but you know there are a few things like you know the the old old argument about column versus line you know um if you've ever tried to keep just 100 blokes in line across rough ground you can see why they're actually always attacked in column yeah um so things like that that you can get a bit of appreciation for but in terms of the everyday life you know it was extremely hard um i think you know even though i found little evidence of it i think being broken up into companies must have made their life harder because you would not have that regular kind of um, support network of the regiment so the regimental quartermaster regimental surgeons you know the first 60th companies apart from the ones in the third division who had who had their headquarters um they were all you know split away from that and so they would have had to rely on the senior regiment of the brigade for their surgeon and that kind of thing um the you know Sharp, you know, portrays riflemen as kind of a proto SAS, you know, doing special missions and stuff. And you know, that wasn't the life of a rifleman. You know, they they were light troops supporting their brigade. You know, the brigade was a tactical unit, and you know, um, when the brigade marched, um, the rifle company would often form the advance guard. So they would be having to not march along the road. But marching on the flanks through the hills and that type of thing, you know, um, making sure that the French weren't going to surprise, you know, the column. Um, there, you know, in battle, they would be typically deployed ahead of the brigade or maybe on the flanks. And so as the French approached, they would target the officers, you know, to, you know, officially to, to break up the command and control. So that the, you know, when the French columns tried to redeploy, they didn't have the officers there and that, that kind of thing. But also there's lots of accounts of them actually targeting the officers so they could go and plunder them as well. You know, because obviously, you know, the, the, there's much richer pickings on an officer. Um, there, you know, there are lots of comments about how the 5th, 60th were a little bit, bit better prepared for campaign life than some of the Redcoat units. Uh, which is, which is, you know, I found interesting. You know, one great account about how they always cooked better. Um, you know, and you know they always made more of the rations. You know, than uh, the typical boiled beef. You know, that the, um, that the Brits did. So you know, there's all that kind of thing. And just generally, you know, especially you know for the, the guys who are out there for five and a half years. You know, it was a very long campaign. And so there was a lot of attrition from disease and illness and, you know, people being invalided back. You know, it wasn't the kind of, you know, let's go behind enemy lines and, and rescue the damsel of the week. You know, it was a very yeah, different life. Yeah, completely. I mean, I'm curious about the fact that, as you said at the start of this, they've served in the West Indies. So is there a sense that they're actually a little bit more seasoned? Uh, for people who aren't familiar, the West Indies was essentially a, a death sentence. In fact, what they would often do is transport convicted soldiers to West India units hmm. um, or they garrisoned it with with slave units um, because Westerners who were sent out there just dropped and it's a horrible phrase but they dropped like flies from disease hmm. so these these guys who have served in the West Indies is there a sense that they're kind of slightly more battle hardened which enables the 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 unit as a whole to stay out for the entirety where others have such kind of catastrophic attritional losses that they get sent back home. Yeah, I mean, certainly a, a factor of that, you know, if you, if you survived the West Indies, you know, Spain and Portugal was probably a bit of a holiday. But also, as the unit got replaced, um, you know, as, as people, you know, were killed or, or, or died of disease, the recruits they got were typically um, from uh, either French prisoners of war or French deserters. And so they'd had one, you know, at least one campaign already you know perhaps several more i mean there are there are there are guys who started off the war in one of the royalist swiss units you know uh, got captured volunteered for british swiss unit and then went back to were captured again with the french fought the french you know people who changed sides several times and so the, i think on the whole they were much more experienced soldiers than the you know the recruits from the militia that you know the, the british units were getting you know and that helped them uh, you know, to have a lower sickness rate. And also there's um, uh, uh, one of the surgeons um, notes that um, he's commenting about the King's German Legion, but he, but he says they had a lower sickness rate because they drank less. Yeah, so, Interesting. you know, and obviously, you know, the, the very hard drinking a lot of the units did, you know, because 
it was a hard life, you know, would affect their health. And and also again, you know, the the comments about them, them cooking better would improve their health. You know, so there are various factors. I mean, it's very hard to draw any conclusions from a couple of you know, from a couple of anecdotes. Uh, but there is that evidence there. It's interesting that you talk about recruitment because that's where I wanted to to kind of take the discussion next because it's it's kind of problematic in some respects for the fifth sixtieth that they are drawing in when they need replacements. They're drawing in. French deserters because there is this whole kind of discussion about how good those deserters were because the point is that mm -hmm. if you deserted from your original unit to then serve in a new surrogate unit on the other side mm -hmm. you don't have any loyalty to any side of the the struggle so you're just as likely to desert from your new unit in this case the fifth 60th mm -hmm. as you were from your original French unit so what kind of an impact does that have on the kind of the longevity of kind of recruit retention? Well, the first large swathe of prisoners um, to join the 560th actually was in Suriname in 1799. The, the battalion was part of a part of an invasion of, of Suriname that, that, that took you know, uh, the colony. And in the colony was a Spanish unit called the Walloon Guards. And the Walloon Guards was a foreign regiment of the Spanish army, and these particular uh, troops had been Hungarian and Austrian soldiers, had been captured by the French, sold to the Spanish, and sent to this Dutch colony. <laughs> and it takes about, some tracking, doesn't it? Exactly. And about 100 of these guys joined the 560th, and many of them carried on throughout the period. I mean, served like 20 years. And they seem to have served pretty loyally. I've, you know, they're, you know, um, yeah, I can I can trace guys back to the Wounded Guards who are dying at the Battle of Toulouse, you know, right at the end of the you know, the wars. And obviously, yeah, some did some did desert, and you know, but others didn't. Um, so you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to you know come to any conclusion. You know, there's the next big swathe of prisoners was from a uh, captured in a convoy that was going to the West Indies in 1806. So this is the French convoy going to resupply their, their West Indian colonies. It was captured by the Royal Navy. And again, about 100 of those guys volunteered. And those particular regiments were mostly recruited either in, um, in the Rhineland, so, you know, and uh, what's now, what, what is now Belgium, both areas that had recently come under French control. So the French had invaded the area. They had then, you know, incorporated its part of France and, and began you know, conscripting people. And obviously, you know, it'd be like, you know, people being conscripted from, you know, German areas of Poland or something like that during the Second World War. You know, um, their loyalty would not have been to, to France. Um, but again, you know, lots of those people, you know, did serve throughout the period. There's one guy called um, uh, George Coaster, and he was from the Rhineland. He was taken on that convoy, and he rose to be a colour sergeant and eventually retired about 1824, I think, and, and uh, bought a pub in, in Montreal. Yeah, so, so, so he had a you know, huge um, uh, you know, career with, you know, with the unit. So, you know, there was a, you know, lots of people who did come from that background uh, who did serve loyally, but likely, you know, but otherwise there was a, there was a French officer who volunteered uh, for the 60th, 5th, 60th. He uh, became a sergeant, and he joined, the, I think he joined about 1811 or 1810. He, he became a sergeant, but then um, he deserted during the retreat from uh, uh, Burgos and was then recaptured again in the uniform of a French sergeant after the Battle of Victoria when he was tried and shot. You know, and you know, the biggest issue they had, well, there are two real peaks of desertion. The first was uh, during the advance into Spain under Sir John Moore. The advance um, into Spain. It, into Spain, yeah. Oh, that's um, very interesting. The, there's a lot of assumption that um, John Moore lost control of his army during the retreat. Mm. You know, Which isn't true. I mean, it, it's, no, it's actually before that point that you really start to see things pick up in terms of desertions, isn't it? Exactly. And about 100, uh, maybe 120 of the 5th, 60th um, had deserted before they even got to Salamanca. But inter interestingly, about three quarters of those men rejoined. Wow. So yeah, so it's not clear what exactly was going on. You know, the the the, the regiment, you know, the battalion was split into two wings, and one wing had a lot worse desertion problem than the other. 
and the, the physics officers told Moore that they didn't trust their men, and they, you know, and, and Moore decided to um, send them back in, into Portugal with, um, with the um, uh, with the baggage. Um, but as I said, you know, most of those men rejoined. So it's more like that they were out marauding, you know, scavenging for food or something. But, you know, the, the, there's a lot of letters, uh, you know, from Moore basically indicate he lost control of the army from an early stage, you know. And, um, Interesting. I didn't know it was that early um, I, because I know that you, you have issues before the Corinna retreat starts in very late December, actually, in kind of the earlier part of December, things are really starting to fall apart and he's starting to complain. But I didn't know that it was as early as just kind of getting into. Spain. Yeah, um, the sixth, the sixth foot um, had a big problem, and more, I think, uh, executed one of their guys and sent sixth foot back into Portugal. But then, when the when the fifth sixtieth turned up and were in a worse state, um, they got sent to Portugal and sixth foot got brought back. Yeah, so it, it, it yeah, it's, I think. You know, it's very easy to look at the figures for desertion and, and come to conclusions, but when you, when you actually look into the individual cases, it's a very complex picture. Um, even um, there's a great series of, um, you, you know, as you know, most of the uh, trials of the of the ranks don't survive. Yeah. But there was a series of trials in 1806 while the fifth sixtieth was still at um, Portsmouth. Um, that it really illustrates how varied the reason for desertion is. I think there are eight guys tried in three different trials. And the first trial, um, four guys uh, went out to a pub, got drunk, um, slept over, and then realized in the morning that they were gonna be in trouble and decided rather than to face the consequences of being absent without leave, they might as well just run. And so, you know- classic. Um, The classic you know, intoxication defense. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, there was another guy who um, said he'd been um, tricked by the recruiting sergeant. So this, this is when they were still, this, this is still when they were still recruiting from, um, directly from Germany. And yeah, so recruits were brought over from, from, from Germany and the, the recruiting sergeant, you know, basically convinced him to, to sign this piece of paper. The guy thought he was signing up for seven years, but actually the recruiting sergeant got him to sign up for life, which gave the sergeant more bounty. Yeah. And this guy, he um, he, he deserted from the 660th and then went, went to join the King's German Legion for seven years. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he wanted to serve, just it's not for life. Um, but I'm sure he was quite happy to, to take the bounty money for exactly, both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was another guy who was offered a job as a pastry chef in London and so decided to leave. And there's another guy who was just very obviously a very young, inexperienced soldier who was, he said he was led astray by you know, someone else. And there's one guy who was involved in some kind of um, a case of theft and decided to leave. And I think the last one was a guy who's, you know, pure, you know, he seemed like the typical bad apple, you know, and, you know, who just, you know, didn't want to serve as was sick of the army and wanted to leave. So, but, you know, that's out of eight people. There's a big variety of different, you know, sources there. Um, you know, I think the, the most unusual case I found for desertion was a guy who was washed away during river crossing uh, during the pursuit after a porto, you know, because the, Fifth were one of the units that pursued salt across the, the Portuguese mountains. So this guy was uh, swept away, uh, you know, um, during a crossing. I've, I've got both, you know, the entry in the in the pay book and an account from a uh, officer of the eighty seventh, I think. And yeah, so it's clear what happened to him, and he, he was marked dead. You know, you know um, but then he turns up about eighteen months later uh, as a deserter. So he obviously survived. And just didn't get back to the unit particularly quickly. <laughs> Interesting. Was he discovered? Because I mean, northern Portugal, it's not an um, it's not an area where the army is particularly active. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not clear at all. You know. Oh, Interesting. Um, now that's the frustration, you know, about these things. As you know, you get part of the story, but you never get all the story. You know? Completely. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I know we're talking a lot about desertion, but it is such an interesting topic, and it's brought up so neatly by the example of the fifth sixtieth, because you've also got this phenomenon of the mercenary soldier during this period. Yeah. Well, well, in fairness, a little bit earlier, Ilya Berkovich has done a great book looking at this um, on motivation. 
in kind of the Ancien Regime armies. And he talks about how it wasn't actually that unusual for people to go from serving in one army to another and then back again. So there's this kind of hangover that's uh, and kind of this whole notion of mercenary units is is quite prevalent on the continent. So for a lot of these men who are recruited from continental inverted commas armies, I, I do wonder if there's just a slightly different philosophy going on that the British perhaps are, are less willing to to accept. Yeah, I think it's also that that, that you know there's obviously a, a barrier to desertion, isn't it? The, uh, that, that's the unknown. You know, so if you look in British units in Ireland and uh, what became Canada in the period, they have quite high desertion rates yeah. because, you know, you know, if you're a guy from the slums of Birmingham or whatever, and you end up in the big wide open spaces of, you know, uh, of, um, of Halifax and, and Nova Scotia, you can see how that, you know, that's a very attractive, you know, uh, attractive place to live. They all speak English and that kind of thing. Whereas for the foreign for the British troops in the peninsula, you know, they had no idea what serving in the French army was like. They didn't know the language. But for the foreign troops, they often did know what serving in the French army was like, you know, and so that that there wasn't that barrier to to, to making that change because they've done it once already, as you said, you know. I also think, you know, one thing that isn't considered um, about desertion is mental health. You know, one thing I was surprised when, when I was looking through the... Um, Playbooks for the fiftieth. About once or twice a year, there would be a suicide. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it will just, you know, the, in the pay book, it will just say, shot himself. You know, and you could think okay well that's obviously one form of desertion mm -hmm. uh, a fairly extreme one but there had to be others who were suffering from you know things like alcoholism and depression and post-traumatic stress and so you know that would be a factor in their choice of of not deciding to go ahead you know um the book i've just written um was an account of an officer of the 34th um foot basically just leaving the front and being found on the way to lisbon you know, in a state of undress and derangement, you know, and he was, you know, sent back to England for his health, but if he'd been an ordinary soldier, he would have been marked off as, a, you know, as deserting, you know. Yeah, I mean, there is that two-tier system going on there, isn't there, between yeah. how officers are treated and, and how the rank and file are treated. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, because there is a phenomenon of an insanity defence. It's something I've been looking at oh, recently, mm -hmm. and you do very occasionally get, I mean, in a way, intoxication is an example of... Yeah. Kind of a diminished responsibility defense so they although it's not true mental health as we understand it they're trying to say look i, I wasn't in charge of my actions but that you some very some very occasionally get individuals who say you know half the time i'm not um of a what's the phrase they use um i'm not in a something like i'm not in a clear state of mind so it's it's an interesting kind of turn of phrase and the courts take it very seriously and they really kind of drill down into investigating whether or not there's truth there, which shows that the courts do, I don't know whether they have sympathy for it, but they do take such a plea seriously. But the flip side to this is that quite often these defences are put forward by the rank and file because officers, are, I don't think officers are ever tried for desertion. They might occasionally be tried for absence. And being rank and file, they don't have the education and the connections to be able to put together really strong cases for 
their defense and as a result what you find is that they cut they put forward these insanity pleas um but they can't bring forward the witnesses to back up those insanity pleas yeah. and so the whole thing falls apart um but yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting point i mean yeah there's always this temptation to think of mental health as something new yeah, whereas you know, there's obvious cases of shell shock and whatever in, in in both world wars, and there's no reason to think that you know serving five and a half years through a campaign, even though you know the actual action was fairly spaced out, it would still be a very trying experience. Yeah, absolutely. And the losses are constant because you've got yeah. people dying from disease, or in fact yeah. more dying from disease than than are from battlefield casualties. So if you're not yeah. traumatized by the gore of battle um then you are still kind of suffering from the after effects of depression from the fact that mm. your comrades who you are spending your entire time with are are dropping through illness yeah i mean there's times that like like you know 20 or 30 percent of a battalion would would die in a, in a few months isn't it you know so yeah i mean there are some real characters in this unit as well which your book draws out really nicely so tell us about some of the officers and the rank and file that you in effect brought back to life through your research um one of my favorites has got to be johann schwalbach um when the battalion landed in portugal in 1808 uh, he was a corporal and he got to be general fane's orderly so general fane was the the brigade commander of the the brigade that the the, the 60th were in and uh, Schwalbach uh, features in the memoir of uh, a Royal Engineers officer called Landman. It's, it's a very good memoir. And he basically features for being able to scrounge wine for General Fane very effectively. So there's a, wonderful, you know, a couple of wonderful passages about him scrounging wine from, you know, uh, from various places. Um, but during the Battle of Vimiero, um, he was with his general and helped to capture a French cannon that was trying to flee, uh, flee from the battle. And soon after that, and you know, I, I don't know whether it's because he was good at getting wine or because he captured a cannon, but he was commissioned into the Portuguese um, service. Wow! And so he was commissioned as a lieutenant in the in the Casadors, and he served with I think it was the Sixth Casadors um, throughout the Peninsular War and rose to captain. And he stayed with the Portuguese armies after the war and eventually rose to be a general and a viscount. Wow, that's a hell of a story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so it's a you know, hell of a career for a rifleman. Um, another good one is uh, Peter Blassier. Um, Captain Peter Blassier was um, a company commander um, in the 2nd Division, and he's the first rifle officer I know of to appear in a novel. So he beat sharp by a good 150 years. Um, there is an officer of the 92nd, the Gordon Highlanders, whose son was a famous Victorian novelist. And this guy wrote a book, uh, which is basically a novelization of his father's war service and um, in, the, in the 92nd Gordon Highlanders. So um, Blassier is, is a character in the book and he's a very um, taciturn, pipe smoking, cabbage eating German. You know, some quite nice descriptions in there. What's nice is that Captain Patterson of the 50th left a, a, another really detailed description of the real Blassier. And, you know, again, that goes into wonderful detail as to how tatty his uniform is, how he never took it off, but how he was always there with his rifleman, you know. Um, so, yeah, you, you get the real kind of impression of um, Captain Fredrickson from Sharp, yeah. you know, a real old soldier, you know, his, his men are dirty, but the rifles are clean, you know. Um, yeah, completely. Yeah, and, you know, and it was quite, you know, depressing, you know, reading through the campaign and finding out that that guy had died uh, in 1814 at the very end of the campaign. You know, he survived for five years and then, you know, was killed in a small skirmish, you know. Um, there's another guy, um, which is, again, shows the kind of, you know, good luck you sometimes get in research. Um, uh, he's called um, uh, Louis von, von um, Ingersleben. So he was a Prussian officer and in 1807 when the french army defeated the prussians and forced the disbandment of most of the prussian army he came over to the uk uh joined the 60th and at albuera he was severely wounded and went back to the uk to recover 
and I was going through the outbook of the foreign depot and the, the foreign depot was a depot in the UK which dealt with all the, the foreign units and the, the commandant of the depot uh, was writing to the CEO of the 560 saying look I've been approached by this doctor who says Ingersleben left without paying his bill and left in a state of derangement so you know I was sitting there in the, in the reading room of um the National Archives and I thought oh you know because I had the doctor's name and and where he practiced the name of his house so I just googled it and it turns out it was an, an insane asylum interesting yeah and it was, this is you know this doctor was one of the first kind of really enlightened uh, doctors treating insanity and his house in Wiltshire was you know um there's an 1830 prospectus basically saying it's an, it's an oasis of calm it's basically a nice country house you know where the the um the inmates were encouraged to exercise and that kind of thing it's a nice sort of peaceful environment so ingersleben had obviously been wounded um at albuera and it affected him mentally as well um and he, he had a head wound it's not clear he was severely wounded but it's not it's not clear um but he went back to the battalion and in 1812 no, and he was court-martialed for a fairly petty dispute about where to stable his horse. You know, so he, 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 um, the two officers basically arguing about who had rights to the stable. And, and you know, but reading the transcript, you do get an impression that he turned to anger pretty quickly. Yeah, so again, yeah, there's no basis for this, but it, you know, it's tempting to think he was suffer still suffering from PTSD. Interesting. Yeah. The reason that I raised that he had a head wound was because I've been going through, as I said, kind of insanity defences and mm -hmm. cases where insanity has has an impact. And one of the things that they do seem to be conscious of is that an injury to the head can lead to what we would now recognise as traumatic brain injury, which yeah. can therefore have you know an impact yeah. on on personality traits and so on. So, like you say, it sounds like certainly whatever the the, the wound was he uh, he had some kind of after effect from it yeah i mean he, he then left the, left the battalion to go to the second kgl lights and fought with them waterloo so yeah he had a you know still had a long career um but the longest serving officer was a guy called uh, jean-pierre galif and again yeah this, this really illustrates the the life of some of these officers who did come from the continent um at the outbreak of the revolution he was serving in one of the, the swiss regiments in french service and after the, the you know the king uh, got executed the whole regiment marched out of the barracks and went to the royalist armies um uh, jean-pierre went back to geneva where he was from and defended geneva against the french but then uh you know he, he he's, he's one of the few set of letters that i've got from the battalion you know there's, there's no memoirs from the battalion and there's only a couple of sets of letters and you know and in you know i've got a letter from galif to, you know to his father basically saying look you know all i know is is how to soldier you know I, you know, I had a good career in france you know i'm not going to be a merchant like you want me to you know i'm going back to the army and he went actually went to the dutch service first served in the red Azars, and then joined uh, the york rangers and british service which which were uh, and then when the 560th reformed he, he joined them so throughout um the period you know and when the the uh, battalion landed in portugal he was a um, a, a, a brevet major and ended up commanding the battalion uh, towards the end of the war he had 15 clasps to his uh, various campaign medals so he's you know he, he's one of the few officers to serve both at front of Sonoro and albuera you know yeah, uh, that's, he, that's not uh, an, uh, a service record that you particularly want because your odds wouldn't be particularly <laughs> good, would they? No, no I mean, exactly. Neither, neither was a great, yeah. um, a great affair, uh, particularly at Albuera, obviously. But yeah, you know, he, he served with the battalion from formation through to the last month um, you know, before they were disbanded. And interestingly, if he hadn't survived the wars, my kids wouldn't exist. <laughs> because his descendant Rodney Galif, because um, the Galif family went on to serve the British Army throughout the Victorian period, mostly in India, and Rodney Galif uh, lives quite near me, and uh, he formed a, a flying school, 
and in the 1990s um, he decided to get air cadets um, learning to fly and my wife was one of the first students and only came to this area because of the flying scholarship and saw a job at advertised which I, uh, I then interviewed her for and we then ended up getting married and having kids but if, if you know if if Rodney Galeef hadn't existed because his, his, his great 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 grandfather had died yeah that wouldn't have happened how incredible is that? <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. I mean, yeah, and it's, yeah, I only got to know Rodney, um, you know, once I started writing the book and, and, and you know, and doing the research. And, you know, as, as I said, you know, he, um, John Galeef's letters are one of the few ones I get. Frustratingly, not that many from the Peninsula, but Rodney remembers playing with his Peninsula War journal when he was a kid. But it's, it's now gone missing somewhere in the family. Oh no, how awful <laughs> is that? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Wow, that's that's incredible that you've got your mm. own kind of personal connection to these guys. It's, yeah, exactly. I, I yeah. Yeah. The, the kind of the winds of fate elements of things. That, yeah. you know, you've got no way of knowing that these things happen, but they just, they just do. Yeah. What are the wider attitudes of the army then to this unit? I mean, let's start with with Wellington. Wellington. I mean, we touched on some of Wellington's attitudes in a sense already, haven't we? You know, lack of tolerance for desertion. Well, that's an army-wide thing. But Wellington not being somebody who's fussed so much about clothing as, mm. you know, the the troops actually being able to fight properly when required on campaign. So, did he like the fifth, sixtieth? Did he recognise them, or did they kind of get forgotten because they're split up? into these different brigades i i only found um one direct comment on them and that was when wellington was replying to one of the brigade commanders um and basically the brigade commander had had, had praised the company that was attached to his brigade and uh, wellington wrote back saying yes you know that that, that chimes with everything i've heard about that excellent corps and certainly he must have had some confidence in them so even though they did have a you know the typical you know um, problem with desertion um they, they were left you know you know being being in their split into the companies they weren't you know you think if they were if you're having a, a a problem with a unit you'd get it back together rather than keeping it split up um but no they you know they mean you know from 1810 onwards the, the companies never got back together again you know um so you must have some confidence in them as you say in the in his dispatches and that kind of thing they're often you know, um, not praised individually because they were part of the light companies. You know, you quite often see in, you know, in reports of battles, the light companies went forward. Well, that would have been the light companies plus the wife company, but they're not individually mentioned, you know, and it's, it, it can be quite hard to trace what the individual companies were actually doing. You know, um, often I only knew they took part in the battle because of the casualties, you know, on that day. Um, in the wider army, I've not heard, you know, seen anything apart from John Moore's comments after they deserted, saying that they should be disbanded and sent to the colonies. Yeah, I've I've, I've not heard anything negative. Um, there's several comments from officers who were in brigades with them, saying that um, they helped raise the standard of the light companies because these are specialist light company troops. You know, and for example, you know, an officer of the 32nd says that they. Were very much better at using cover and not just standing out in the middle of nowhere firing at the French that you know the, the, the Germans would would use cover appropriately and that type of thing. Yeah I mean it is worth kind of for all that we've talked about desertion kind of rehabilitating their reputation slightly as deserters <laughs> because they're you know they, these are not the Chasseurs Britannique which just hemorrhaged men through desertion at the rate of sort of 100 a month. Um, yeah. For, for a significant period of time. I think one factor that um, perhaps helped was that the commandant of the foreign depot um, was a former 60th officer. And there's quite a few letters that basically saying, you know, that he was hand picking the troops for them. Yeah, but there again, he says that to the Brunswickers and other people as well, but you know, um, but you know, there is some element of selection in the foreign recruits, which perhaps isn't the case with other British units. Yeah, because you, be, you know the recruiting party would just get whatever it got, whereas you know with you know with recruiting from a depot, you have a chance to you know push officers into certain you know sorry, push for the officers to push men into certain units. I mean, there is a phenomenon across all of the foreign units of having higher desertion rates than the 
let's call them inverted commas yeah. British units. Mm. Um, it, King's German Legion, widely respected, but still had what you might call significant desertion rates. But you know, all of these numbers are, are in broader terms quite small. So KGL, mm. I don't think ever peaks above an average of two deserters a month. Obviously, it varies from month to month across a campaign and so on. But if you average it out across their period of service, I think for them, it's under two a month. Uh, for the life of me, I can't remember what it is for the fifth, sixth year. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I didn't like compile the figures, but, you know, my impression was going through the, the pay books and whatever. You might have like three or four a month, but often you had one or two coming back as well. You know, so, you know, it's not a clear picture, you know. No, absolutely. I mean, this is always the thing. Where does the, the line lie between absence and desertion? Yeah. Because if these men are coming back, are they coming back under armed guard? Are mm. they're forced to come back or do they come back voluntarily? Because if they come back voluntarily, then the intent to desert probably isn't there as much as it is for those who physically go and, and join the, the opposing side. I mean, the other interesting one that I think people often, people don't like me saying this, the first 95th, they mm -hmm. they always get very angry fans of, of the rifles when I say this, but the first 95th had one of the worst kind of desertion mm. rates. It wasn't the worst yeah. by any means, but it wasn't great either. I think they average out at 1.2 a month, which is higher than a number of the other um, kind of British inverted commas units that are serving alongside them. So, yeah. you know, for all that we can kind of sit in judgment, actually even our perceptions of the 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 first 95th as kind of the elite rifles mm. perhaps needs a just a bit of tempering and a bit of kind of injection of realism beyond what we see in sharp if you if you know what i'm trying to say yeah it's, i think it's in either insert in Surtees's memoir or, or harris there's a bit where some of the irish recruits go and attack the colonel's daughter or something you know there are, so there were no less prone to being rogues as anyone else, you know. <laughs> exactly. Lower down the the ranks, what's the attitude towards the fifth, sixtieth? Because there's this, and I'm talking here about kind of rank and file mm. captains, etc. Because there is a a resistance sometimes to foreign inverted commas troops, in the which is often dependent on what people see. So if you talk about the Portuguese, mm -hmm. that's completely tied up with whether or not the individual had a bad experience serving alongside Portuguese troops. With the Spanish, perhaps more of an inclination to be scathing. What's what's the stance with the 5th, 60th? Did you pick up on a, a kind of a prejudice or is it more more of an acceptance? Uh, no, I, I didn't come, you know, come across anything that negative, certainly. Um, you know, as you know, a lot of the memoirs are, you know, are very focused on their particular unit. And you could be forgiven for thinking that they're you know, the battalion was their battalion was operating on their own, and there was you know not, not even the other you know units in the brigade are mentioned. Um, you know, quite often the, the you know sixtieth are mentioned, you know, in relation to plundering. You know, there's several accounts of them, as I said, picking off French officers and that type of thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I I think they're you know, my impression is you know like the King's German Legion, they were widely accepted and respected, and you know seemed to be the you know on a par with you know with the british troops i have to ask about the research process behind all of this because <laughs> i mean regimental histories they were quite common certainly my perception as a researcher is that they they were much more common um in the first half um or perhaps even the first three quarters of the 20th century yeah and then kind of faded off a bit as people started to focus more on kind of social history rather than kind of narrative history. Mm. So, uh, and there are exceptions to that obviously, but for the most part, you don't tend to see regimental histories anymore. So, so what was the research process like? Because did you find yourself kind of having to discover a new art in terms of weaving this story together? Or, you know, was it, was it just that you were writing your first history book, if you will, as opposed to your novels? And, and so it was kind of all of a learning curve. Yeah, I mean, you know, to some extent, I, I didn't know any better. So, you know, um, there were, have been two previous histories, uh, one called uh, Swift and Bold, written in the Victorian period, and another uh, part of the, the uh, annals of the King's Royal Rifle Corps, uh, which was published in 1920. 
Um, but like most of those Victorian early 20th century uh, histories, they very much are the offices, you know, focused on the offices. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I had a, you know, rough basis from that. Um, but obviously Google, you know, Google was my friend, you know, um, once I started Googling stuff, I found letters of an officer um, uh, called uh, um, James Prevost. His letters are in an archive in, in Albany, New York. Yeah, so I got those sent over as digital files. Uh, uh, John Galeef's letters were in the archive in Geneva, so I got those. But then it was just, you know, going through the records in uh, the, the National Archives. I mean, you know, if I'd been writing um, a history of the 95th, you know, you've got like 20 different memoirs to work with. And so to, to an extent, because I didn't have those memoirs, so I had to work a bit harder. And I think the book's probably better for it because, you know, going through the regimental returns, the pay books, you just get these little, little stories of, you know, um, guys who, you know, shot themselves or, you know, deserted or, you know, just, you know, and it's just, you know, I think, you know, having been a novelist, you know, a historical novelist, you do kind of get used to weaving a story around the facts. And, I, you know, that helped me, you know, make a narrative out of these little snippets of information and, and join them together in, you know, to hopefully present the story of the unit quite well, you know. Um, but yeah, it was just a lot of hard work. Yeah, I basically did it full time for about 18 months, you know, for which book, which is not going to earn me very much money. It was quite a commitment, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, being a historian is not a route to uh, vast wealth, that's for sure, but it, <laughs> no, it sure exactly. can be fun. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what happens to the fifth 60th after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, well, at the end of the Peninsula War, they were down to about 250 men um, and they were sent back to Cork. And obviously, with the end of the war, they lost their, you know, their recruiting ground of prisoners of war and deserters. And so they, they remained under strength uh, for, for a fair while. They were too under strength for the Waterloo campaign. And it's only when the King's German Legion got disbanded in 1816, and a lot of those guys transferred over uh, into the uh, 560th, but they actually came back up to numbers. Um, they were then stationed in Gibraltar for a few years. And then as the, you know, the army wound down, I mean, you know, the battalions of the, you know, the, there were eight battalions of the 60th at the end of the war. And gradually they got disbanded and the 50th yes, would have disbanded in, in the Isle of Wight in 1818. Um, most of the men went to the um, other battalions and carried on serving with those and then eventually all the foreigners were um, forced out in the 1820s and it became the Duke of York's uh, Rifle Corps and then the King's Royal Rifle Corps and then, you know, in the 20th century, it was, you know, merged into the Royal Green Jackets and, and, and now the Rifles Regiment. So when you talk about the, the foreign troops being forced out, was that a kind of a thing of nationalism and prejudice against foreign troops or were there other motivations for that? Yeah, it seems to be a fairly acrimonious process. There's a, a file in the National Archives of letters from people saying, OK, well, you're forcing me out, but what about my pension? And yeah, that type of thing. Um, yeah, so I think it was just to make it into a British regiment rather than a foreign corps, you know. Uh, I mean, by that time, there were large numbers of you know, British troops in, in there already, but they were just, as I said, forced out. You know, I mean, many of them would have been coming to the end of their service anyway. Um, but, you know, it seemed quite sad. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about your other work, though, because you're not done by any means. No, not uh, at all. I have the, you know, I have the bug now. Um, so, um, I've completed a book on the battles of Arimelinos and Almaraz, which are two small battles of General Hill, who, who commanded a separate force in the south for a large period of the Peninsula War. And that was actually ready, um, it should have been published, you know, beginning of this year, but, um, um, you know, Covid has, has delayed it and it should be out in January next year now, I think. Um, but that's quite interesting because they're, they're two small battles that haven't been studied before individually, you know, they get a a power, you know, they get a couple of paragraphs in you know, a man and, and that type of thing. Um, but they are quite good because they, they uh, it's basically the same British units in both. So I was able to carry on using regimental returns and regimental inspections and that stuff to give quite a good idea of the character of the units and, and lots of nice little details. 
which you can't do if you're doing a you know Salamanca with you know several thousand troops. Um, yes, yeah, so, so that was quite fun, and uh, yeah, also uh, General Hill is a lovely character. You know, you know these days where you know the US and the UK are both run by people you might not want to your children getting married to. You know, to, to find someone from history who is a really nice bloke. You know, who no one had a bad word to say about him. You know, um, and he was you know he's known as Daddy Hill, but actually you know these two battles also show him as quite a hard soldier. He was happy to drive his men really hard to you know to achieve the aim and to take risks so you know, yeah. that was quite fun you know and hill um general hills from shropshire where i was born as well so that was quite nice has there been a biography of hill for a while because yes. i guess yeah like decent biography a kind of a rory muir style assessment yeah. of his there's one um by a military historian called well the first one was a victorian you know, typical Victorian puff piece by a guy called Sydney, which is useful for having all the correspondence in there, but it's not a proper biography. Um, then there in the 80s or 90s, I think it was, um, a, a, historian, a military historian called Tefetella um, did one, which is good on the military side, but like all, a lot of those books in the 80s, yeah, they didn't have the resources we have of being able to search digital archives and that type of thing. Um, and then uh, I think one of his descendants wrote one um, more recently, and that's better on the family side, but not very good on the military. Um, so you're right, yeah, you know, it, it could do with a good one, but um, you know that depends on my editor. <laughs> I was going to say, there's a future project <laughs> yeah. for you. Yes, eventually maybe. Oh, uh, yeah, I've, I'm uh, I'm currently working on a on a history of the 1808 campaign in Portugal. So that's. Yes, yeah, so that's my you know my current project, um, and but I will carry on writing history. You know, um, it's a you know it's it's a great hobby to have. You know, um, and it just and also the one thing that makes it is the great community we've got of of historians. You know, you know one thing that kept us all going through through lockdown is the little little um, knot of uh, you know historians we have on Twitter. You know, you know really good conversations between them, and also very willing to help. You know, um, I had an email from a mutual friend, um, Eamon, the other day, helped him out with something. I've, you know, you, I've asked you for stuff in the past, you know, and everyone's happy to share, you know, which is very nice. Absolutely. It's it's a great little community and it's it's fun to be a part of it, I have to say. Rob, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me on the Napoleon Assessed. Thank you. That was Rob Griffith joining me to discuss the Forgotten Riflemen of the 5th Battalion, 60th Regiment. You can follow Rob on Twitter at Rob underscore Griffith underscore and his titles on the 5th 60th and the Battles of Almorath and Arroyo Molinos are available to order from hellion.co.uk. As you heard, Rob is one of the incredibly generous people who supports the Napoleon Assist on Patreon. That's not why I interviewed him, as you heard, he's very knowledgeable and his research is really interesting. If you are interested in becoming a patron, helping to cover the production costs of this podcast, you can find out more at patreon.com forward slash the Napoleon Assist. Prices start from £1 a month and there are neat perks including shout outs in the credits and exclusive opportunities. If you would rather not part with your money, I completely understand. But please do take a couple of moments to spread the word. Hit the like, retweet and share buttons on social media. Leave a review or follow the podcast on your preferred platform and join the conversation online. On Twitter, you'll find me at ZWhiteHistory. And of course, there's the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. A big thank you to everyone who has helped to spread the word and particular thank you to my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, an anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Rory Muir and James Bevan. Join me next time when I'll be doing a talk on how the British newspapers reported on the Peninsula War and what that can tell us about popular attitudes towards the conflict. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves my friends. Stay well, stay safe, socially distance where you can, keep being kind to one another, and as always, 
Thank you for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.